At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. This morning, we are going to be continuing a sermon series we began a number of weeks ago called The Lord of New Heaven and Earth, a series where we are walking through the last four chapters of the Bible. Now, if you've been with us in 2022, you know that this series is a part of a number of series as we have walked through beginning to end the book of Revelation this year. And we have seen again and again that the book of Revelation is a revelation of who? It is a revelation of Jesus Christ, and he's been revealed in a number of different ways. And right now we're seeing how he has been revealed as the Lord of the new heaven and the new earth. Now, today we're going to be in part eight of this series as we look at Revelation 22, 6 to 13. Now, you need to know that when you get to this section of Revelation, we really are in the postscript section of the book. The revelation has gone forth. John has faithfully recorded it for us. And then beginning in verse 6, we see John beginning to wrap up the revelation. And, And really, because of the chronological order in which the scripture was given, wrapping up the delivery of the New Testament to us and our entire scripture to us as well. And so we're going to be looking at that postscript this week and next. But before we look at that this week, I want to orient us to the subject matter that we're going to be looking at today. And it has to do with God's Word. It has to do with the Scripture. And so as we think about the Scripture a little more deeply, I want to ask you a question. Um, Have you or anyone you know ever had an attitude towards Scripture that went like this? I really like the words that Jesus says but I'm not so sure about the things that Paul said or the things that John said or the things that James said. In other words, what Jesus said, that has authority, but the things that are communicated by the other apostles, eh, not so much. It's a popular idea that's out there today. Maybe you struggle with this idea. Another expression of this might be, you know, what I really like are the red letter parts of the New Testament. Now, you may not be familiar with what that is, but in many English translations, the the parts of the Gospels where Jesus directly speaks, where words of Jesus are put in quotations, oftentimes they are in red letters. And there are some who would say, I love the red letter parts, but, but not so much the rest of it. I mean, I could take or leave the rest of it, but really everything we need is just in the red letter parts of the Scripture. And the idea behind both of these notions is that somehow what Jesus said is more authoritative than what the rest of the Scripture says. Is that an accurate thought? Is that a right idea? Well, we need to examine that thought because at first glance, it sounds spiritual, doesn't it? Somebody to say, what I really want is Jesus. Everything else, not so much. It sounds spiritual. But laced inside of that is an understanding that Jesus only spoke through his earthly life and ministry and that he is silent both before and after. What if Jesus was speaking before he came to the earth through the Old Testament prophets? And what if he is speaking after his earthly ministry through the apostles in the recording of the scripture? Friends, that is an orthodox understanding of what the scripture is all about. 
But oftentimes we forget it. And when we forget it, we're tempted to think that the red letter parts have authority while the rest are just the opinions of man. Today, what I want us to do is look at the words that that John shares with us in his postscript to the book of Revelation that will help us to understand a little bit more about the nature of the Word of God, the nature of the Scripture, so that we might recalibrate our understanding to what this book actually is. And then after we have recalibrated to that, then we can begin to have a little conversation about how we might respond to the Word. So I want us to see those two things today, and we're going to see it as we look at Revelation 22, 6 to 13. So if you've got a Bible, take it and turn to Revelation 22, the last chapter of the Scripture. And I want us to begin looking at verse 6. I'll read these verses for us, and then we'll back up and make a couple of observations. It says, And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Instead, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now, friends, in these few verses, we're going to see a couple of things that help us understand both the nature of God's Word as well as how we are to respond to God's Word. So the first thing I want us to do is talk about the nature of it, and I want us to receive the Word. I want us to receive the Word of God. Now, when I say Word of God and I apply that idea to the Scripture, what I'm saying is that that this book in the 39 installments of the Old Testament and the 27 books of the New Testament, 66 books in all, is God's gift to us. It is His revelation. It It is His Word given to us. And because of that, it is truthful and reliable in his direction for you and me. Now, when I say that, it's it's interesting that this idea is actually an idea that is commonly held by by many in this country who would call themselves evangelicals. There's actually a a group, the Ligonier Ministries, together with Lifeway uh, uh, Publishing House, that does a survey of American citizens every two years, and they they try to find trends in the the belief structures of our country. And among those who consider themselves to be evangelicals, they ask the question, is the Bible true? And 74% of evangelicals responded and said, yes, the Bible is true. And so this is a, a national statistic. That number is not that high when you think of all of Americans. It's just less than 50% of all Americans believe that the Bible is true, but 74% of evangelicals. So when I stand up in front of you this morning today, my guess is that many of you, many of you would nod your head in agreement with the idea that the Bible is truthful, that it is, in fact, God's word. 
But, but what do we really mean when we say that? What do we mean when we say that the Bible is God's word? I mean, is the Bible just a book that contains God's ideas mixed together with error, mixed together with opinions, mixed together with cultural nonsense, with God's word somewhere found inside it? Is the Bible just man's idea that God uses on occasion to encourage or to bless people? Or is the Bible something altogether different than that? Is the Bible unique? Is the Bible God's revelation of himself to us? Does it originate from him? Well, in order to answer that question, we need to look at some of the foundational passages in the New Testament that talk about the scripture itself. One of those passages is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. It says this, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Notice that the graphic nature of that text. All scripture is breathed out by God. Not that this is man's idea that God uses on occasion, but that all scripture is actually breathed into existence by God. It would not exist apart from God initiating the process. And it was given by God for the purpose of of changing us, for the purpose of shaping us, giving us direction in the way that we are to live and where we are to go and the things that we are to avoid and, and an understanding of who God really is. That's what 2 Timothy 3 tells us. It tells us that the scripture is originated from God for the purpose of guiding and transforming us. But how did God get that scripture to us? Well, 2 Peter chapter 1 tells us. It says, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Again, the scripture is unambiguous about this. These are not man's ideas that God is using. They are God's breath God's revelation, God's ideas, God's content that men recorded so that we might know more of who God is and how he wants us to live. It was God who who moved them along. It was God who guided them. Revelation came about not because John had a lot of free time on the island of Patmos, Revelation came about because God said, there is something I need to reveal. And so God moved John along to record it. The gospels didn't come about because John said, yeah, this is pretty neat life that Jesus lived. We ought to tell people about it. It came about because God said, this is what you need to communicate, John, about the nature of Jesus. The letter that Paul wrote to Ephesus didn't come about because Paul just was a really wordy guy. It came about because God said, there is a message that needs to go to the church in Ephesus, and that message is to be preserved for churches in all places at all times, and so it was recorded. That's this idea. It is God who initiated the process. It is God who breathed it into existence through the human authors to preserve his content for us. Now, this is the big idea from a couple of key passages in the New Testament, but How does that interface with what we saw in Revelation 22? 
Well, in, in Revelation 22, when we think about this being the word of God, it's, it's so interesting to see how it begins. An angel speaks to John and says, these words are trustworthy and true. What words? These words. But what are these words? What was he referring to? Well, there's a number of different options. One possibility is that he's referring to the message that the angel communicated to John. In other words, a number of times we've seen this, right? An angel says to John, come up with me on this mountain and I'll show you the new heavenly city coming down from the sky. Or he says, come with me into heaven and I will give you a tour of the heavenly uh, place. See, it's possible that these words were referring to the words that were communicated from the angel. It's also possible that these words are referring to the words that came from Jesus himself. Look at what it says in verse 7. Jesus directly speaks and says, behold, I'm coming soon. Clearly, that is Jesus who is talking. It's not the angel who is coming soon. It's Jesus who is coming soon. That's the whole context of the book. And so these words, were they referring to what the angel communicated? Were they referring to what what Jesus directly communicates and, and John hears? Or were they communicating with what John said? John says in verse 8, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. In other words, John saw them, John wrote them down. What is, what is it that these words are talking about? Is it talking about the angel? Is it talking about Jesus himself? Is it talking about the things that John wrote? What do you think? The answer is all of them. That's exactly right, Stephen. The answer is all of them. It is all of these words. There's really no distinction that is made. The same authority is given to the message that came through the angel, is given to the words that came directly from the mouth of Jesus, is given to the words that John writes inside of Revelation. It all carries the same weight. And there's good reason for that. There's good reason for that. You know, uh, my friend Shane is sitting here on the, the second row. So let's just, let's just imagine this. If Shane were to turn and to, to, to share a message for the room, just ha- has a word to share with, with Wildwood, and he shares it. Well, let's say that Roger hears it. And then somebody a little further back in the room goes, you know, Trevor says, well, I, I'm, I'm not sure. What, what was it that, that he said? And Roger said, well, well Shane said this. Trevor goes, oh, okay, I get it. And then, and then Mark back in the other corner goes, wait, wait, what did he say? And then Trevor turns and says to Mark, hey, this is, this is what Shane said. Where did that message originate? Whose words are being shared? Shane's words communicated through this chain. We see a very similar authority given to the word of God. Whether it comes from God himself, whether it comes through the agency of an angel, whether it comes from uh, John, whether it comes from Jesus' own mouth, it all carries the same weight. It all carries the same authority because it is God who is speaking through all of those channels. And they're recorded for us inside of God's word. So when we look to the scripture, we shouldn't divide it out and say that there are red letter sections that we need to listen to and we ignore the rest. The reality is we see here that it is God who is speaking through it all. It is God who is authoritatively speaking through it all inside of scripture. The Bible is God's word. And because the Bible is God's word, it is true and it is 
trustworthy. It is trustworthy and true. Another translation, an accurate one would be to say this is the word faithful. It's the same word, faithful and true. I I say that that should be expected. Why? Because if, if God is the one who is communicating it, our God is faithful and true. So what he says would be reliable and helpful and something that we could depend upon. Now, when we, we look at this idea, it, it, it's helpful for us to, to see again where trustworthy and true is used in the rest of Revelation. That's a phrase, faithful and true. It's a phrase that we've seen before, haven't we, in our study of Revelation? You might remember back in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, in the letter to the church at Laodicea, Jesus signs it with a special nickname for himself, the one who is the faithful and true witness. And when Jesus comes back in Revelation 19, 11, he is called a name. What is that name that he is called? He is called the one who is faithful and true. It's the same phrase in all three of those settings. What it is telling us is that the the word of God, the living word of God, Jesus, the living word of God, was faithful and true. Look at what it says in John chapter 1. a very famous set of verses. It says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who is the word here, friends? It's, It's Jesus identified as the one who became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and what? And truth, and truth. Because Our God is truthful. The living word of God was truthful. And we should expect that the written word of God would be truthful as well. Friends, our understanding of the Bible as something reliable and helpful that we can depend on and study and break down and and lean into is anchored not just in our own hopes and dreams. It's anchored in the person of God himself. It is reliable because our God is reliable. It is truthful because our God is a God of truth. Therefore, when we open God's word, we can depend upon it. We can rely upon it. It gives us accurate information because it comes from a truthful God. If this book came just from men, it would be a mixture of truth and error because that's the world that we live in. But if it truly comes from God, it's in a whole different category, isn't it? And it is. Because of that, friends, it can speak with accuracy and authority about things that have not yet happened. None of us can do that. Some of us had predictions about the way the game was going to turn out yesterday. Some of your predictions were right, and some of them were not right. That's the nature of our lives. Sometimes we're right and sometimes we're wrong because we don't have a crystal ball. We don't have perfect vision. We don't see tomorrow as clearly as we saw yesterday. But there's one who does, and that is our God. He is the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He sees the new creation of the new Jerusalem just as clearly as he saw the creation of the Garden of Eden. He sees him in the same moment with equal clarity. Because of that, when he speaks about the things that will soon take place, he knows what he's talking about. 
Humans, since the beginning of time, have speculated about how the world's going to end. You want to know how the world's going to end? It's not going to be found in a Washington press conference. It's going to be found in the Scripture. Why is it that we're opening and, and turning and reading these passages? Because the God who sees the end is communicating to us about where this is all headed. It's the nature of the Word of God. And friends, we are called to receive it, to receive it. See, there's this little insidious idea that is, that is penetrating our culture and our world today. And it's this idea that somehow this book is not trustworthy, that it's full of errors, and that we get to determine ourselves the parts we like and the parts we don't like. Friends, that's not the way it works. That may be the way we interact with every other book that is written, but this is not like every other book. This is God's truth that is revealed to us. And embracing it creates a foundation upon which we can build a life that God has intended. You know, in, in our, our world today, it's popular to talk about deconstructing faith. And again, it's one of those ideas that sounds spiritual. We're going to break our faith down. And that somehow will make us more mature. But the reality is, friends, that a deconstructed faith is not a picture of maturity. A picture of maturity is a robust faith that is anchored on the bedrock of God's truth. We can ask our questions. God's big enough. He can, he'll receive them. He'll listen. He can provide answers. But, but at some point, we're going to have to anchor ourselves to something. And I'm telling you, God has given us his word, living and written, so that we might anchor ourselves to them. There are some things that with, those, with that foundation, we can find the answers to the other questions that we have. I want us to receive God's word. But there's a second thing we need to do, not just to receive God's word, but also to respond to God's word. You know, God has not given us the scripture just so that we have something to read. God has not given us the scripture just so that we would be entertained. God has not given us the scripture just to satisfy our curiosity. God has given us his word. He breathed it into existence. He moved the prophets along. He delivered it through an angel and John and Jesus and, and others. God, God has done all of that because he desires that we respond to him in certain ways. I, I love what Warren Wiersbe says about this. He says, heaven is more than a destination. It is a motivation. The assurance of heaven must not lull us into complacency or carelessness, but spur us to fulfill our spiritual duties. Friends, God has not given us the book of Revelation. We've not studied it for the last year just so that we could answer trivia questions about the end. God desires that it reorganize our lives today and we respond to him in faith. So how might we respond to him? Well, a, a couple of things. First of all, I want us to see what the passage tells us we should not do, and then also look at what the passage tells us we should do. So what should we not do? How should we not respond? Well, one of the ways we should not respond to this being the word of God is by worshiping the messenger, is by worshiping the messenger. We see this in verses eight and nine. 
He says, I, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. John got a little carried away, didn't he? I mean, we can understand it. He's received all of this revelation, not over, you know, 50 weeks as we have as a church family, but he received this in, in a very short amount of time, and he's absolutely overwhelmed by what he has heard. I mean, the, the, the beauty of it, the hope of it, the challenge of it. And so what does he do as he receives this message? This is not the first time he's done this. It's the second, but he, he hears this message, and he falls down, and he begins to worship the angel. And the angel says, what are you doing? This message is not about the angel. This message is from God. If you're going to respond, respond to him, not just to me. Now, we may not have had an experience where we want to fall down and worship angels, but I think we can relate to the sentiment, can't we? When God works through others in our lives, we have a temptation to maybe not worship them, but probably to revere them in a higher way than we should. It's just something that, that, that happens, temptation. It can happen with our attitude towards denominational affiliations. If we came to faith in an environment that was, that was Catholic or Methodist or Southern Baptist or non-denominational or whatever it might be, we might be tempted to, to just look to that denomination and say, that's where it's really happening. And if we're not careful, we can begin to think that is only where it can happen. And when we begin to make those shifts, we find ourselves bowing our knee to the denomination and forgetting the God that that denomination was created to represent. Or maybe it's not that. Maybe it's with some version of, of the Scripture there are those that would look at the Scripture and say that the only good English translation of the Scripture is the King James Version, or the only good translation of the Scripture is the New American Standard or the ESV or whatever you might want to adhere to. But the reality, friends, is that those translations were given to us to point us to God. And if we ever find ourselves lifting up a particular translation to an overly high level, we might find ourselves bowing at the feet of an angel and missing the God that sent it. Or maybe it's neither of those things. Maybe instead it is a particular pastor or teacher that you like. You know, we live in a day and age where you can have access to all different kinds of teaching, right? You can dial it into your particular interests, your particular styles. There are, you know, millions of preachers out there on YouTube, most of them better than me, okay? And so I know when you leave, you can go find other stuff to listen to. And that, that's great. All of us are that way. There are people. And, and here's the thing. When we think about the way that God has blessed us through the teaching of others, there's a sense where it's appropriate for us to, to express appreciation to that. And if we find a reliable source for us to, to continue to listen to people, but we need to be very careful that we don't cross a line. When we begin to fall at the feet of the preacher and not see the God who sent him and whose word he is proclaiming. 
I know that this is something that, that I've struggled with before. Um, I know uh, back a number of years ago, I, I spent the summer in, in, in Russia doing ministry. And I, at the time, was attending Wildwood and listening to Bruce Hess, who was the senior pastor at the time, preach God's word. And I remember being away that summer and, and going to a different church and thinking, wow, I can't wait to get back to some good preaching back at Wildwood because I had come to really enjoy Bruce. And there's a part of that where there's some nice affection in that, right? But here's the problem. If I begin to let that idea transition into a perspective that says, you know what, God probably isn't going to show up in his word this week because Bruce isn't delivering that message. And so I'll just kind of check out during the sermon this week instead of diving into God's word. Then I'm worshiping an angel. And yes, you can tell Bruce I called him an angel today. It's a challenge that we go through. We are not to worship the angel. We are not to worship the messenger. Instead, we are to look at the one who sent the message. This can happen in in parachurch ministry. If we came to Christ through a, a parachurch movement, it's possible that we will want to lift up that parachurch movement to a, a level of authority that goes beyond even our allegiance to Christ. We need to be careful, friends. Don't worship the messenger. Instead, worship the one who sent the messenger. Keep Christ first. So don't worship the messenger. A second way we are not to respond. We are not to conceal the message. We're not to conceal the message. Now, what do I mean when I say we're not to conceal the message? Well, we see in verse 10, he says, and he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. Now, that phrase there is very significant biblically because if you go back to Daniel chapter 12, at the end of Daniel's prophecy, God told Daniel to seal up the prophecy that he had just delivered. In other words, what God was saying was, Daniel, there are things that you just talked about in the book of Daniel. And if you've recently read Daniel, you would would amen that. There are things in that that apart from New Testament revelation, apart from even what we see in the book of Revelation, don't make a lot of sense. And so God said to Daniel, I want you to seal up this prophecy for a time. But when revelation is given, what God says is, Don't seal this up any longer. Stop concealing this. Open this up and proclaim this truth in the world around you. Let everyone know about it. Stop concealing this truth. Now, when we we hear that, I want to ask you, what are the kinds of truths that we often want to conceal about God? Probably a number of things, particular sins the Bible calls out that we don't want to talk about. But but also, I want to mentioned specifically the things that the book of Revelation talks about. Revelation talks about God coming in judgment one day. Friends, that is a truth that we want to conceal sometimes, isn't it? We want to conceal it. It's certainly a truth our world around us wants to conceal. The world around us wants to say, stop talking that way. God is this this wonderful, forgiving grandfather, and that's all that he is. God is forgiving. God is gracious, but God also is just, and he will come to judge the earth and bring all to accountability. What we see here is that a response to this truth is not to to hear the truth of the book of Revelation and conceal it, fold it up, put it in our back pocket, and, and try to forget about it, but we're to keep it open in front of us and proclaim to the world around us, even the hard parts. 
We're not to worship the messenger. We're not to conceal the message. We're also not to delay our response to the message. We're not to delay our response to the message. If, do you notice the urgency in these verses? There's a lot of urgency in these verses. Behold, Jesus says, I'm coming soon. The time is near. Behold, I'm coming soon. Just in the few verses, there's an urgency to this section of the scripture. Why is there an urgency in this section? Because Jesus wants us to respond while we still have a chance to respond. And why is that important? Well, because verse 12 tells us he is coming soon. And when he does, he's going to bring recompense with him to repay each one for what he has done. When Jesus returns, judgment will come. And so we need to respond while we have time. This idea is underscored even more by what we see in verse 11. Now, admittedly, verse 11 is a strange verse to our ears and to our eyes. But there's an important truth in it. He says, let the evildoers still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. Is God really telling people to just keep being filthy? Is God really telling people to just keep being evil? No, I don't think that's the idea. But what I think he's saying is there will come a time where our response to him will have concrete poured over it. Right now, we can hear this message and we can repent. We can turn from our evil ways and we can trust in Christ. But there will come a time where we will not have that opportunity any longer. There will come a time if we reject Christ that we will no longer have an opportunity to accept him that if we are living the life of an evildoer, that we might have to continue in that path and pattern forever. This is shared that we might repent while we have time. You know, it's, it's interesting. In this life that we live, uh, people will often say things like, you know, I'm going to get serious with God after I'm going to get serious with God after I get out of high school. I'm going to get serious with God after I get out of college. I'm going to get serious with God after we, we get kids. I'm going to get serious with God after the kids are a little bit older. I'm going to get serious with God after we're in the empty nest phase. I'm going to get serious with God after I find out I've got a stage four cancer diagnosis. I'm going to get serious with God after, after, after. We believe that there's always more time and we delay as if there's something better to hang on to today. Friends, these passages are given to disrupt that sense of timelessness. Jesus is coming soon. The time is near. Our response to him will be made permanent at some point, and we don't know the day or the hour. You know, in my office, I have hung on the wall a little visitor card of someone that came on a Sunday and trusted Christ and died that following week. I have that on the wall as a reminder that what we do here is important, but also that there's an urgency to it. We can feel like there's always another Sunday, but we don't know that there is. If you're here today and you have never trusted in Christ and you are delaying trusting in him because you think there's something else that is more important or pressing, let me urge upon you strongly, there is nothing worth that risk. And maybe you're here today just because the Lord wants to pull the curtain back and invite you to trust him now while you have time. 
We're not to worship the messenger, conceal the message, or delay our response. Because it is appointed for us to die once, and after that will come our judgment. So if that's what we're not to do, what are we to do? What are we to do? Well, we are to respond by keeping the word. By keeping the word. This is what he says in verse 7. Behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. There's a blessing that comes to those who keep this message. What does it mean to keep it? It means to believe it, to guard it, to hold it fast. Friends, we are to respond to the word of God by embracing it and by obeying it and by trusting in the God who gave it. Have you done that? And furthermore, we're to preach the word. Again, we're not to seal it up. What's the opposite of sealing it up? It's to proclaim it. It's to share it. Friends, we are not to keep our faith a secret. We are not to keep our understanding of the urgency of the matter a secret, but we are to proclaim this message into the lives of our family, into the lives of those in our neighborhood, into the lives of those that we work with, and ultimately into the world and the far ends of the earth. Now, when I put this up here, some of you are thinking, well, that's great. I'm not a preacher, so that's your job. No, it's our job. I have one microphone for this room, but you have a microphone that is your life that is amplified in your settings. What's the message that you're proclaiming there? Friends, we are to receive and to respond to the word. Are we doing that? Pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for just this this great passage and the encouragement that we find inside it. Lord, thank you that uh, you just love us so much that you entrust us with this revelation of yourself. Lord, and you do so not just to satisfy our curiosity, but to give us a chance to respond, to to trust you now, that our trajectory for eternity might be set, and and also to, to live the life that you've created us to live now. Lord, may we be a people who anchor our lives to your truth and who proclaim it freely and openly to others. We thank you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.